Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. A la Louisiane, de la Louisiane, la Louisiane. There are many different ways to refer to today's cocktail, which, for the purposes of this intro at least, I'm just going to call the Louisiane. As its name suggests, this drink has deep roots in the state of Louisiana, and more specifically, the classic cocktail capital of New Orleans. Much like related drinks, the Sazerac and Vieux Carré, the Louisiane epitomizes everything that city is about via its preparation, serve, and ingredients. It stands to reason, therefore, that we would head to that city for today's guest. We're not going to do that, though. Instead, we're heading somewhere equally as magical. And I'm talking, of course, about New York's Maison Premier Bar and its managing partner and executive bar director, William Elliott. You can head back to our Daiquiri episode to learn more about William's background. And if you haven't already listened to that one, listener, it's a belter. A couple more words on that bar for a second, though, because, yes, in simple terms, Maison Premier is a Brooklyn-based love letter to the great city of New Orleans but also means many other things to many different people. It caters to tiki heads, absinthe drinkers, and those of us for whom nothing quite matches the simple pleasure of enjoying an exceedingly cold, well-made martini. I'm just gonna put it out there, listener. I think today's chat might be even better than the episode we did on the daiquiri, but I'll leave that up to you to decide as we head into this week's edition of the Cocktail College Podcast. It's returning guest, friend of the show, William Elliott, here today in the Cocktail College studio. A new studio for you. First yes. First time in this one. First time. Beautiful digs. I love it. Thank you very much and welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Tim. It's good to be here. Pleasure to have you back. Beautiful conditions out here in New York City. It's sunny. It's a little bit brisk. Other than that, nothing really notable going on right now in town as Tim, we're recording. Tim, it's arraignment day. That's oh, it's, very notable. Oh, it's happening? They're releasing the charges any minute now. Any minute now. On former president of the United States. Donald Trump. Trump. There we go. It's happening right now. We've taken a little break from that, from watching the coverage, or we're probably going to get notifications through this. You've turned yours off, right? I definitely have, but I have started drinking (laughs) water. Just kidding. Just just the water for now. There we go. Want to kick it off just by saying there's a wonderful tie-in for today's show, because... When you last came and appeared on Cocktail College, we discussed the daiquiri, which is a drink that's close to your heart and, and, you know, close to what you do at the bar. But also, I think I mentioned then, maybe slightly unexpected for some folks because you have a very strong New Orleans tie over there at Maison Premier. Correct. So today's cocktail will correct that. But also there's a wonderful time because I'm happy to announce, I mean, the news is out there, but happy for us to briefly chat about an upcoming book that you've been working on, the Maison Premier Almanac, which is releasing April 25th, and which today's cocktail, A la Louisiane, features in. Very true. Yes, we are so excited. It's been uh, years in the making and obviously a pandemic uh, plopped right into the middle of the process of writing the book. Um, so we're, we couldn't be happier. Uh, it's co-authored with um, Joshua Boise and Christoph Ziska, who are the co-founders of Maison, and then uh, Jordan McKay, who's an author and now a really good friend of ours. Nice. Um, so yeah, we're excited for the release on the 25th. Yeah, and, and what can listeners of this show and, and, and 
hungry readers, if that works, uh, what can they expect? Thirsty readers. Thirsty readers. Yeah, that's the one. And works better for as an analogy yeah. for this show too. Yeah, uh, nice reminder there. What can they expect though to find in this book? What are, you know. Obviously, it's tied to the bar, but mm-hmm. what else? What are we looking at? Yeah, so I think it's a really genre-breaking um, book. I, I hope um, you know it's very different than a lot of uh, cocktail books on the market currently. Um, and I think just in the same way that when you experience Maison Premier, of course, you can experience it a bunch of different meaningful ways. However, uh, Maison Premier is just different than inherently different than a lot of cocktail bars. It involves oysters, there's food, there's a beautiful back garden, there's the historic element, there's the uniforms. So it's just a very rich and textured um, book that's trying to reflect all those items, you know, that, that make up Maison and the DNA of Maison Premier. Yeah, and and I'm not just saying this because you're in the studio. Anyone who knows me or people that listen to this or anyone that's maybe reached out in the past and been like, hey, Tim, I'm visiting New York, like the show, have you got any recommendations? I always send them your way because, you know, it's truly one of my favorite spots to drink in the city. Tim, you're probably one of the best um, traveled drinking uh, fellows that I know. So that's that's very high praise. Thank you. I appreciate that. But yeah, you guys keep up the good work. And I'm also really excited today. We're discussing Ala Louisiane, as we mentioned up top there. Mm-hmm. And in the intro, it's in the title. This is one of those drinks that maybe flies under the radar because of its origin, maybe. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, it is, you know, a drink that for us uh, was sort of a second or third tier New Orleans classic. And I have to give credit where it's due. Maxwell Britton, who's the um, opening bar director at Maison Premier, um, chose it for the opening menu. And that menu was a lot smaller than it is today. It was probably 12 drinks. Um, but it was, I think a lot of people in New York, I think it was, you know, one of the first places to experience a La Louisiane. Um, and I just, you know, I fell in love with it instantly. I, I had read of it and I had made it once or twice before joining the team. Uh, it's, it's just like a superior Manhattan in my mm-hmm. opinion. <laughs> That's, I, I'm so glad <laughs> you mentioned that. Right to that. the punchline. <laughs> a, couldn't agree with you more. And B, you read my mind because I was going to ask you there, like, what's the elevator pitch or how do you describe this cocktail in a couple of words to someone? So you really see this as being like uh, similar to the Manhattan, but improved in various ways. Yes. I mean, it, and I say that sitting in New York and loving New York and loving the lure of the Manhattan cocktail and, and have, you know, I obviously enjoy the drink. But for me, it just combines all these elements that are um, very New Orleans, very Maison Premier, and the sum total adds up to being just a much more nuanced, uh, rich, you know, complex Manhattan. Yeah, and I think as we'll get into a little bit later too, when we look at those ingredients, I mean, improved very much in the in the literal sense of the term when we're, when we're talking, you know, cocktail terminology. There. Sure. Yeah, great. It's actually great. I had never really thought of that, but that very much so is true. You know, you're referring to like improved cocktails where it's dashes added of things. And yes, this is uh, obviously just, you know, with dashes of absinthe and dashes of pastry bitters. Very, very cool drink. And if the listeners out there will forgive me, I do think if there's anything that does hold the Manhattan back as a drink, it's just maybe on the complexity front, it falls a little short of maybe some other top tier, in my opinion, purely cocktails, of which I would rank this one. Um, 
Here's another thing I personally love about this drink, that it's served up, yes. and it's a spirit-forward boozy cocktail. That's something I love, but I think in the whiskey realm, beyond the Sazerac, which is another great drink from that wonderful mm-hmm. city, oftentimes you'll see them served either on the rocks or down. Uh, but this one, classically served up, I mean, that's what that's what I'm looking for from a boozy cocktail. Absolutely. And I think, you know, especially if the recipe, and I'm sure we'll get into this later, but if the recipe is tweaked so that it's not like an all-equal parts drink, is, you know, there's a lot of debate out there as far as the original uh, recipe for the drink. But if it's not all equal parts and it's a little bit more whiskey forward, it really plays well, I think, with being an up drink. Nice. In terms of history, what do we know about this one? I was trying to do some um, background on this. Didn't find maybe as much out there as other ones. And also, maybe I've lost the art of navigating a large book, but oftentimes one of my first stops is the Oxford Companion. And I don't know whether it's because of the naming of this that it falls under multiple names, right? There's a, there's a number of different ways to describe this drink. I couldn't find the entry in there. I'm sure it is. I'm sure I just need to spend a little bit more time. But yeah, what do we know about the the history of this? Yeah, I you know, I'm almost equally unclear as, as you. I have heard it referred to in so many different names. I think that's part of the complicating factor. Um, is it in New Orleans drinks and how to drink them or mix them? That, I would assume so, I, yeah. I believe that's where it first caught consciousness at Maison Premier when we were opening. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you say, I mean, it it has as many different versions and recipes as it does origin stories. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think I really like to look at these drinks holistically. I mean, there are amazing cocktail historians out there who do this for a full-time job. You know, of course, we know David Wondrich, good friend, and, and just has done so much to unearth information like this. Um, but I just like to think of these drinks sort of in a holistic way where these were ingredients at hand and really a part of the local lexicon in New Orleans. And they they found their way into the drink. Mm-hmm. And as we will explore too, yeah, but spoiler alert, many of those ingredients intrinsic to that city, we're talking absinthe, various bitters, rye whiskey. So, you know, a lot, a lot of different components that found their way into other classic cocktails from there. Um, what are you looking for personally from a perfectly executed version of this drink? And where does the profile land for you? Yeah, I have demoed it. You know, obviously, back when we opened, we were all trying to make the best version we possibly could and, and coalesce upon a recipe. Uh, and where we eventually landed, should I, should I say the recipe? Yeah, feel now? free to. Okay. Feel, feel free. Uh, you know, I, I think it's a great one to make at home. It's not super complicated. Um, you're not using a shaker or mint or anything like that. So it's it's very doable home drink, I think. Um, I, between four and five dashes of Peychaud bitters. I always start small ingredients to largest, by the way, just the way I work. Um, five dashes of absinthe, a good vert absinthe. So, you know, Pernod, of course, is very well known. Um, La Muse vert, Vieux Pantelier, all very excellent absinthe for this application. Uh, about half an ounce, not about, a half ounce of uh, Benedictine, which sometimes uh, historically I think went a little larger and could overly sweeten the drink. Three quarters of an ounce of a nice Torino-style sweet vermouth. So, you know, obviously Carpano Antica is is ubiquitous. But, uh, you know, we really love like Bordiga, uh, Rosso, a very nice vermouth from, from Italy. 
Uh, and then an ounce and three quarter of overproof, ideally overproof rye, rye whiskey. Uh, and I say overproof but because, of course, it's fighting back against all these other rather viscous, sweeter components. Yeah. Wonderful drink right there. I think the other way, you know, I sp you spoke earlier about this being, you know, linked in certain ways to the Manhattan. Other ways people have described this drink as a riff on the Vieux Carré, uh, which is totally accurate, but also maybe not something that everyone has a reference for. So it's like, yeah, that doesn't help me. Sure, yeah. Vucare shares all the same ingredients except mm -hmm. the dashes of absinthe and it adds some cognac, you know, or brandy. Yeah. So, yeah, very tied at the hip, but achieves a totally different mood. A hundred percent, yeah. There's something um, very uh, focused. You know, there's like a viscosity and a silkiness of texture that you get when you have a perfectly cold, chilled up drink. Mm -hmm. And on the flip side, Vieux Carré is a very relaxed kind of expansive, you know, self-diluting uh, version of a lot of the same flavors, but just very different vibe. And even if, you know, we're coming in at probably roughly the same proof there, I do feel like a Vieux Carré is one that I could enjoy a couple of over an afternoon, maybe a nice, lovely afternoon in the garden there at Maison Premier. Yes. But a la Louisiane, maybe sticking with one or two max. Yeah, I mean, it's really punctuating almost. You mm -hmm. know, it's it feels very much like the brown equivalent to a, a nice martini to me. Obviously, it's a lot more viscous and there's uh, more sugar content, but it's uh, equally brisk, you know. Yeah. When is the perfect occasion in your mind for drinking this? I like to think of this as a nice after-dinner cocktail. You know, I don't generally return to martinis after dinner, even though I want to. And this feels like a good logical next step, or maybe I might go for a Sazerac. But again, we're in that wheelhouse. Yeah, I agree, Tim. It's, um, you know, as somebody who does frequently drink a martini before a nice dinner um, and who ends with perhaps nice, neat spirits, this is a great alternative to neat mm. spirits. I think it's uh, just as sort of brooding and uh, forceful of, of a profile as drinking an Armagnac or a Cognac on, you know, after dinner, but you have that sort of elevated luxury of it being a cocktail. Nice, yeah, that's wonderful. And also just to, like, maybe rather than going down the, the neat spirits route, you know, this is going to be slightly lower in proof, but also just still pack that punch when it comes to flavor, concentration, and complexity. Absolutely, yeah. And and then I love the addition of a, I love a reason to, to garnish something with the brandied cherry occasionally. You know, I'm not drinking a lot of Manhattans these days, and I don't put cherries in my last word particularly. So it's a nice excuse to uh, chew on a nice cherry. And uh, again, brilliant thing to do after a lovely meal. Um, going back to that idea of the Vieux Carré and the similarities there too, one thing that does stand out about this drink for me and, and the recipe that you mentioned there, you had half an ounce of Benedictine. Um, you said maybe traditionally that might have been higher even. Whereas Vieux Carré... If, unless I'm misremembering, we're talking just like a couple of teaspoons uh, or bar spoons. And I think the interesting thing about that is that that in that drink really does have a massive effect on the final cocktail. So where does half an ounce take us or even maybe some people who are using more? What does that do to the drink? What does Benedictine bring? Sure. 
You know, I think especially when Mason Premier opened 12 years ago, we were, and a lot of people were really pushing back against sweet ingredients, right? There was just decades upon decades of mismade drinks that were too sweet and unpalatable. And while we were trying to fight back, I actually started to almost 180 on that trend and start to really want to include and highlight some of these sweeter ingredients, but in a nuanced way. And the way I think we achieve that in the La Louisiane is by using, you know, overproof whiskey. That really helps sort of claw back balance. And you're really also highlighting the, the beautiful herbal and spice complexity of Benedictine. Benedictine, of course, for those who don't know, made by Benedictine monks historically, very old French liqueur. Um, a lot of sort of baking spice notes, um, a very sort of somber, rich, uh, it, it pairs well with brown spirits specifically in my opinion. So I just, I really wanted to bump the Benedictine up to a place where you could actually acknowledge it as a flavor component in the drink without, of course, taking over the drink and oversweetening it. Mm -hmm. With the Vucare, I really almost see that as a improve, like you're improving it with the Benedictine. Yes. So it's almost an inversion of the concept. Yeah. And I think we spoke about that when we covered that drink on this show, you know, quite a while ago now. But the interesting thing there, like I said, like such a small quantity does have a, a marked impact on the drink. It doesn't hijack things, but it's it's prominent there. So a wonderful ingredient. Yes. I, I think it's highly uh, underutilized. Mm-hmm. And beyond this drink and the Vucare, what might be some other uses for that or well-known ones? Might be catching you off guard with this one because it's not very often the, be the Benedictine comes up. You, you saw my thousand-yard gaze. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do have one um, top of mind. I love uh, – it, it is obscure. I, I can't even remember the last time I had it, but it's called the Rolls-Royce. Ooh. which is a martini variation with Benedictine. So after saying that it pairs uniquely well with brown spirits, I'm going to return back and say it's actually very delicious with gin as well. Um, but to that point, try a Rolls-Royce with um, a barrel-aged gin Ooh. and Benedictine. That sounds yeah. nice. And might you go like down the perfect route there too, where you're splitting that with maybe some... Splitting that with some dry vermouth, or what's the thinking there? Potentially, yes. I mean, I think that's getting into uh, getting out of the original spec or recipe for the Rolls Royce. But yes, I mean that would be a technique that would be a very um, smart, smarty pants bartender move. <laughs> you heard it here. Um, you also mentioned a wonderful um, Torino style vermouth that you use there. Does that also help to? temper the sweetness here of the drink because obviously we're looking for you know a sweet vermouth but one where the other components of that drink maybe have equal prominence so we get more of that herbaceous sure. notes yeah that's a great point tim sweet vermouth can be a little bit of a misnomer um as can amari almost in a opposite sense i mean there can be amari that are very very sweet and there can be sweet vermouths that are very, very bitter. Um, and I think that with the onslaught of new vermouths available in the U.S., I mean, not necessarily new, but classic historic houses of vermouth producers that are finally distributed, imported into the U.S., uh, there's a lot more range. So it used to just be, you know, you had Carpano Antica and Punta Mess, and it was like either or. And now you have just a 
vast array, uh, you know, dozens of equally historic, equally heritage brands and producers um, that are now available in the U.S. And some of them are very bitter. Uh, you know, some of them are more sweet. Um, I really like, I think I'm all about flavor. So it's about combining more sweet, more bitter. It's not about, you know, balance at a low level. It's about amping up everything to a high level. Nice. That's wonderful. And one of the great things about having you on to talk about this drink and another ingredient here, absinthe. <laughs> First one you might have added up top there. The second one you added during your preparation. Talk about, first of all, the relationship of Maison Premier as a bar and that category of uh, liquid there, spirit, liqueur, spirit. Sure. Yeah. When Joshua and Christoph started Maison Premier, um, and I was you know, one of the very first hires there before we were even open, um, it was already in play. It was elemental in their concept uh, for what they envisioned the bar to be. Now, they were smart enough to understand that absinthe was never going to be an, uh, you know, a fearsome, huge category. However, it was a distinguishing characteristic that we could add to the concept, and it was also a very historic element that tied in the history of Paris, New York, and New Orleans all together. Uh, so, you know, Maison, I think, self-identifies as an absinthe bar fully. And the nice thing is that, uh, you know, throughout the years we've evolved in the sense that we don't only have to be restricted to that. I think a lot of people identify us as a martini bar, mm -hmm. great place to get a martini. I think a lot of people identify us as a great place to experience like classic tiki cocktails, you know, um, perhaps, you know, we're definitely not a tiki bar, but I think, you know, undeniably the Mai Tai is a crowd pleaser and a, a fan favorite and the Pina Colada and the Jungle Bird and all these yeah. things. So, um, you know, absinthe is really key to our DNA. And I think when you see it appear in drinks on the menu, um, it does come from a very special place, for sure. And for those of whom maybe own a bottle because they have it for classic cocktails like this, uh, maybe they're not drinking it with the louche and, you know, the classical way to do that. What advice would you give them when it comes to treating this as an ingredient and kind of considering it from brand to brand, like tasting that? Like, I think it can be quite a... Um, intimidating. Intimidating, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I think, it, yeah, I think it can be an intimidating category to approach. So what advice would you give to folks there? You know, start small and, and be kind to yourself. <laughs> Don't pour two ounces in a glass and, and taste it at room temperature undiluted. Uh, I mean, that should be common sense. Uh, absinthe, you can really think of as an extract. So almost like, um, you know, chartreuse just released Elixir Vegetal in the U.S., finally available after all these years. And for those who don't know, it's this little tiny, probably 200 milliliter bottle that historically you would find in drugstores and apothecaries in France. And perhaps you would dash it into your soda water or it's just sort of seen as an all around remedy. And absinthe really comes from that kind of historic culture. Um, so it should always be diluted if you're drinking it by itself. If you're using it as an ingredient, of course, a little goes a long way. That goes without saying. I think having it in a dasher bottle is a great idea at home. If you don't have it in a dasher bottle, it's really easy to just maybe go to a drugstore and get those little dropper bottles or something like that. You could use that in a pinch. Um, 
I think, you know, one of my personal favorite ways to drink it at home is just shaken with some ice, crushed ice, um, shaken really hard and long so that it fully, fully dilutes. Um, and yeah, that we call that, you know, absinthe frap. That's kind of a traditional uh, method of drinking, preparing absinthe. Um, but when using it as an ingredient, it obviously is a tremendously complex herbal profile itself. So it obviously plays well with other herbal things. Gin, I mean, it's amazing. A dash or two of absinthe in a martini is fantastic. Um, but as we can tell from La Louisiane, it also adds this um, herbal element to something that would be really kind of devoid of anything herbal, whiskey mm-hmm. or brandy or, you know, whatever the case may be. Yeah. And obviously you have a fantastic stock of absinthe there at the bar, but when it comes to using cocktails, do you go for one and that's your well absinthe or do you switch it up depending on the drink? Obviously, that's not a luxury for most bars, but uh, is it horses for courses like this absinthe works better in this drink or you're settling on one that's like, we love the profile, the price is right, it ticks all the boxes? Absolutely the former and not the latter. Really? Um, yes. Now, I mean, within reason, right? There are some absinths that are, you know, maybe price prohibitive to put on a cocktail um, and then others are just maybe so historic and beautiful that you just would want to experience it on its own. Um, but perfect example of this might be um, in the absinthe pina colada, which I think a lot of hopefully listeners might even uh, know the drink at Maison Premier. Um, we use a little bit of Germain Robin absinthe. Now, uh, I guess I should call it Mendocino distillers. They changed their name, but they were forever um, distilling this Blanche Absinthe at Germain Robin, which is a California distillery, sort of the first like micro brandy and eau de vie producer in the U.S. back in the 80s. Um, and we have loved that absinthe since the day we opened um, the doors at Maison Premier. It's very minty. It is almost suggests like rose or rose hips. It has this beautiful floral soft quality. It's like it's 50% alcohol, I believe, so it's lower than a lot of other absents. So it's a tremendously um, uh, welcoming entry point for absinthe. And I think it really conveys that in the absinthe pina colada. You know, the mintiness pairs with the coconut. and the, I mean, that's just, honestly, I'm giving away, you know, state secrets here. <laughs> but uh, that specific profile, you know, it's the only way we could achieve that. We couldn't do that with just a regular vert classic traditional French absinthe. It also that absinthe plays by the rules, you know, of absinthe production. So it's legitimate absinthe. It doesn't have sugar added. It has the holy trinity of herbs, which is necessary in order to call something absinthe. Um, so it it fits the bill on that. Now the other end of the spectrum, we have a cocktail called the Inverness, which is this tall crushed ice cocktail. It sort of has layers to it. If you look, um, it's topped with this hand-whipped cassis cream. So we combine heavy cream with creme de cassis, really nice creme de cassis, and just shake it in a shaker tin until it whips. Um, That is a drink that we really wanted a bold, you know, burly, uh, traditional French vert absinthe. Uh, And for that, we use La Muse Vert. Uh, There's a lot more perceptive bitterness in it, which is great because it, again, claws back at the cream sinking down into the drink and sweetening it eventually. So it, it adds a balance um, by, by way of its, you know, sort of burliness. Mm-hmm. 
That's so interesting to hear. A, you talk about the difference in like use case scenarios for different absinths, but you're talking about using cassis, and we mentioned Benedictine earlier and mm-hmm. absinthe. I think that's one of the many things I do love about Maison Premiere. It's like you're rather than doing like ultra modern spirits that maybe don't have a definite category that are cool and fun to play with or rather than not going down like a clarification route or whatever you're like these are the ingredients we have at hand that maybe a lot of people know for one specific drink that's probably old and a classic and you're maybe like maybe it's not it wouldn't be a classic if it was invented today but you're using those ingredients for for modern drinks i love it absolutely yeah i mean i i feel like everything you need to make great cocktails has been around for a <laughs> hundred years. <laughs> it's not that I'm not welcoming to new producers and there's so mm-hmm. many of them out there that we love, but especially at a place like Maison, which is really, you know, historic narrative driven uh, concept. I really love to find un- unearth those kind of categories and feature them prominently, especially, you know, things that people might overlook or uh, might just assume that they don't like. And Cassis is a perfect example. I mean, I believe it or not, I can't believe I'm sitting uh, here on a podcast saying this, but I love a Cure Royale. You know, a well-made Cure Royale, fantastic. Well-made Cure, fantastic. And the story behind it, incredible, even better. So, yeah, I think when you use these things that that a lot of people um, sort of let fall by the wayside, um, it also causes you to dig into the story behind them and, you know— the mayor of Dijon in France, his last name was Kier. <laughs> and that's Just where a little we get fact. that from. <laughs> nice. Notably, we haven't really spoke too much about rye yet. You mentioned overproof before that that helps kind of drive the drink or helps balance out maybe the sweetness there too. You have in the book, which I've been able to see an advanced copy of, thank you for that, you have Wild Turkey one-on-one as, as the rye called out there. Beyond the proof, for this cocktail, what are you looking for from the rye? Because obviously we have a lot of Kentucky-made ryes these days where their mash bill probably falls at just like the legal lower limit of 51. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we're seeing 100% or whether that's 95.5, you know, things like that. What profile of rye do you want for this drink? You know, I want it to um, not play nicely, I guess, with the rest of the ingredients. You know, I think it needs a certain level of assertiveness um, so I guess on a tasting note level, I would say, you know, spice. Spice, I, yeah. I, I hate to be reductive, but that's kind of, you know, I don't think it needs to be a lot more complicated than that. Yeah. Um, I, you just wouldn't want the rye to disappear. Right. Uh, or to shrivel or shrink away from the rest of the flavors. So I think that, you know, whether, you know, some ryes are really outspoken at 47 or 48 or 49, you know, it doesn't need to be 101 or 100 or whatever. Um, it just needs to be assertive and spice mm-hmm. forward. And I think, yeah, spice is that catch-all term we use for for rye, right, when we're describing it. But I think that does very much in- incorporate or encapsulate like a herbaceousness and, and savory notes as well. Caraway sometimes comes mm-hmm. into it too. And when I think about all of those different notes and then I think of the other ingredients in this drink, I'm like, yeah, that's why it works so well with Benedictine, with absinthe, like, totally. and sweet vermouth as well. I mean, like... It works with every single one of the other ones. So it's- yes, absolutely. And I, you know, rye is is funny because you know there's a, a lot of people just talk and think about it and conceptualize it about drinking it on its own. Uh, the world of cocktailing, I think, it's it totally changes the game, changes what you're after. 
Yeah, definitely. And, and I, like, for instance, I'm sorry to cut you off, Tim, no. but it just occurred to me, you know, um, Old Overholt, for instance, totally other end of the spectrum to me, for my palate, very cereal driven. It tastes, you know, I don't know other another word to describe it other than cereal, mm-hmm. which can be a really cool thing. There's this drink on the menu at Maison that's a a julep that's uh you know uses old overholt and manzanilla sherry and a little bit of orgeat and so it's this nutty almost slightly briny but but in a still in a sweet context you know sweet versus savory yeah. context and there's a cereal element to it and it plays in perfectly and i would never use wild turkey in this drink um so yeah it depends on what your end goal is yeah for sure and speaking about Old Overholt for just a second, like very exciting things happening with that brand kind of returning to former glories. I think in 2020, I think they upped the proof slightly on the to 86 from 80 on just like the standard one. Yeah. They're no longer chill filtering that product, which is awesome too. And I think every now and again, they do release some super aged ones, which are I've had a small tasting of and loved. So yeah, exciting to see what they're doing there. Same here. I I have not uh, tasted any of these age ones. You must invite me. The yeah, next <laughs> <time>. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's been a couple years for me too. I need to figure out who who's handling Where that these from. days. Yeah, I'm, I'm rewatching. Um, or I, actually, no, I'm watching for the first time Boardwalk Empire, which is you know, like I feel ashamed that it took me this long, but all the old, old Overholt references in there are fantastic and just so so stunning. It's funny you say that. I just rewatched this. I want to say maybe tail end of last year or early this year and what a great show great drinking show too oh inspirational absolutely i mean inspirational for time and place and setting and set dressing and um you know attire yeah <laughs> just the works it's a very very cool cool piece and one one of the major characters in that one george remus you know now that we're talking about rye um yes. you know definitely a controversial figure did a lot of bad things in his life but was a big bootlegger um and there's a brand named after him now produced by the uh, folks that run MGP, the distillery there in Ohio. So, Is it uh, going to Remus? Is that the name? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, because wow. they have, I believe they have, I forget the name of it now, but they do have a kind of standard, I don't want to say entry level a little bit better, but they have across the board, like their rye recipe that they make for themselves. And I think the Remus one is the higher end. So it's been around a couple of years ago now, but you don't come across it very often. I need to check it out. Thanks yeah. for the alert. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> next time next time you're watching a, a an episode of Boardwalk, <laughs> yes. you know. Put it in my big go. rocks glass, my double rocks glass, and my big cube. Yeah. <laughs> and if we can go down just one more sidebar here, but... Sure. Everyone talks about Mad Men mm-hmm. and the influence on cocktail culture. I don't have the exact timeline in front of me now, but I want to say that those shows were airing almost exactly at the same time, if not maybe one, maybe Mad Men predates Boardwalk Empire slightly. Mm-hmm. But again, speaks to that thirst that we seem to have as drinkers and bartenders in this period for like speakeasies, right? Like this was actually, if Mad Men is post-prohibition, this is really like the speakeasy era. Yes, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I think you're so right. Both of those shows speak to, you know, Amer- very distinctly American habits and, and uh, traditions associated with drinking. And both of them, you know, they're not drinking shows, but they are so tied at the hip to drinking culture that, I mean, there are books about these, uh, about the drinking, uh, the drinks and cocktails that come from these shows now. Yeah. So it's it's interesting. uh um 
relationship it has to to cocktails. Yeah, and just that fairly early era of prestige TV, as they call it these days, (laughs) and the impact that it had on drinks culture. (laughs) I don't know. It's fascinating. Absolutely. Um, Some good New Orleans scenes in there, too, I want to say. I might be making that up. I think so. And then, I mean, I just love, I think really, especially Mad Men for, for... bringing back the martini or, or helping to bring back the martini and sort of the idea of what we internally call midtown mobbing, you know? Yeah. Um, going to these historic, iconic um, spaces like Keene's Steakhouse or the old King Cole Bar at the St. Regis or the Carlisle. All these things are coming back into vogue, but, you know, they, we, they were never out of vogue for us hmm. personally, and it's it's good to see them getting the, the attention they deserve. Yeah. And... That type of martini drinking, I got to say as well for a second here, but I think we might have spoken about on this show before that like, I personally think there's no such thing as a bad airport martini, even <laughs> if it is technically terrible what you're being served. <laughs> I think the same is true of like a classic steakhouse, even if it's probably invariably very boozy, a large serve and might not be diluted enough or whatever, quite imbalanced. The vermouth might be slightly off, who knows, but sure. like... It's it's the place and the setting that just means that it always lands. Oh, absolutely. I mean, preaching to the choir here. It's, <laughs> it's all about context and timing, you know, and if there's one thing that I always like to convey to guests at Maison in the way that they choose their drink, I, I just think it has to do with, you know, where they're coming from and where they're going. Yeah. We're just a stopping off point, um, but... Yeah, it's all about. Have you had dinner yet? Are you are you yeah. hungry? Are you full? Are you celebrating something? You know, ask, nice. ask the questions, do the work. Mm-hmm. All right, back to Ala Luisian. Um, let's talk about preparation now. Uh, you've laid out the spec there before, but feel free to do so again and mm-hmm. talk us through how you would prepare this at the bar. I would start with a chilled coupe glass. I would definitely, um, you know, just stick a coupe or a. Or a martini glass, worst case scenario, in the freezer. I, again, always start with small ingredients and move to largest. I just, for me and for the, our team at Maison, with the complexity of the drinks that we're making, uh, some of them are you know upwards of 10 ingredients. And uh, it's always nice to commit to the, to the base spirit last. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, as Definitely. anyone who's worked behind a bar probably knows. So we start with about four or five dashes, depending on where how full the dasher is. Uh, of Peychaud bitters. Um, same for absinthe, about four or five dashes of absinthe. Occasionally, personally, if I'm making it for myself, maybe I'd do six, seven, or eight dashes of absinthe. <laughs> um, and then half an ounce of uh, Benedictine, three-quarter ounce of uh, Rosso Vermouth, something Torino style, and then overproof rye, about an ounce and three-quarter. Um, in a mixing glass, we're building this. Uh, and then add ice, stir, and I. Here's the thing: I think a lot of people under stir, um, and it's not just under stir. Unfortunately, unless you're somewhat proficient at stirring, you have to stir quickly in order to get it there, sort of. And by get it there, I mean the perfect, perfect balance of dilution and chill. Um, a lot of drinks, and you know, I, I understand this. If you're not doing it a hundred times a day, it's it's stirring's not the easiest thing. Um, but a lot of drinks are served slightly warm, warmer than they should, and slightly less diluted than they mm-hmm. should be. So this is one, especially with the viscosity and the sugar and then the high-proof rye, you really do want to stir this to completion. Um, you know, there's no magic rule for how many revolutions or how long you stir something. It's 
it's really something that you gauge by straw tasting and just knowing the drink really well, knowing the soul of the drink, what it's supposed to taste like. So usually, you know, that usually probably takes about 40, 45 seconds, I would say. Um, and then, of course, uh, strain it into a glass. We like to garnish it with a cherry. I suppose a twist of orange or lemon could be nice as well. Um, but I kind of like to keep citrus out of it just because I love the context of just tasting the the, the Peugeot bitters and the, the absinthe together. Fantastic. And on that citrus note, in a way or in a related way, you know, we're talking about aromatics there too. Notably, you include the absinthe in the build of this drink rather than a rinse of absinthe, which is where perhaps we maybe see that ingredient utilized in many other cocktails. Is that the classic way to prepare this? And what's the thinking behind that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, this is actually very analogous to my Sazerac theory, which is Maison Premier is an absinthe bar. And what a shame for an absinthe bar to throw away the absinthe <laughs> that they're using. So years ago, when I developed the uh, tableside Sazerac service at Maison Premier, um, it occurred to me that, you know, why not serve the absinthe that's being used in the drink as a little sidecar on the side so that you could just observe the aromatic relationship and the you know the the nuances of the absinthe next to your sazerac. Now you will have residual absinthe in your drink, but this gives you a sort of origin story for where that aroma is coming from. And similarly in the La Louisiane, you know, and other cocktails we could talk about, like Corpse Survivor, for instance, is another great example at Maison Premier where we up the absinthe a little bit. You know, rather than doing dashes, we do a teaspoon. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for the La Louisiane, um, I didn't want the subtlety of a rinse. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I wanted people to notably taste absinthe as an ingredient in the drink. Um, so that's that's the thinking there. Nice. And something else too, I mean, you've tweaked the specs here of this drink compared to maybe the classic, but we are arriving at three ounces total. I've looked at this a few times over just making sure my math is correct. <laughs> no, correct. Um, this may be a very rookie question, but oftentimes we will see classic cocktail builds reach that three ounce like or mm-hmm. aim for that. Is that a wash line consideration there or, or why is that? Or is that Ooh, just the way things have like always this. been done and that's why we do that? I like this question. Um you know, for Maison Premier specifically, it was a wash line concern. And you're right. There, you're, Three ounces is essentially the gold number. We, actually, three and a quarter is what we uh, specifically shoot for at Maison Premier. Um, and there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, part of it's glass size and wash line. Uh, the ubiquitous Libby Coupe that every bar used in the early to mid-2000s. Um, if you do three ounces of cocktail in it, it ends up being under the wash line. Huh. It looks like a, you know, it looks yeah. like it got knocked or something and <laughs> lost a little liquid. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, three and a quarter is the golden number. And then I really build everything around. I mean, even our martini spec, for instance, a dry martini, like that three and a quarter, the quarter in the three and a quarter is the dry vermouth, you know? Yeah. So, and then it's three ounces of gin and dashes of bitters. So, um, so yeah, that's a that's a thought process there. Nice. So do you reckon that might that glass therefore we're we're hypothesizing here, but do you think that had an influence on maybe some of the builds of the modern classics that we've seen come out or just cocktails that were invented during that period just again to maybe hit a nicer wash line on that or what what, what do you think there? 
I think so. You know, I don't think Maison specific. I think everybody was kind of going through this at the same time. Yeah. In many ways. So I don't think Maison is necessarily unique in this way. Um, three and a quarter is specific. I, I don't know how many, I'm not sure if other bars do it or not. Um, it definitely influenced my sort of conceptual uh, conceptualization of cocktails and like how to approach um, building in ingredients. Um, and there's lots of, you know, examples of that that we could cover. And, you know, for a time, I think it's it's fun to put these like creative constraints or handcuffs on. Something like all equal parts is yeah. a great method. Uh, you know, there's there's a bunch of stuff stuff like that. Obviously, you know, two, three quarter, three quarters, very ubiquitous uh, ratio that gets used a lot. Um, all equal parts is really interesting and and definitely a, a challenging one to to reach for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find that fascinating. So I appreciate you sharing that there because something I've always wondered. Yeah, just how, why is that the magic number? Or, you know, right? What's behind that? But super interesting to learn that. Um, any final thoughts now on A La Louisiane before, and I keep saying that weird, I'm like, I'm going to mess this up. <laughs> Got it this far, though. The, the La Louisiane, any final thoughts here today on the drink before we move into the final questions of the show? I just, I, it's such a perfect uh, little glimpse into what New Orleans is, you know, not to simplify, but when you taste all of those things together, um, it's it's almost more New Orleans than dare I say, the Sazerac. You know, it's just, it's going such, there. I'm going there. Um, you know, maybe the other closest thing to me that speaks of New Orleans is the classic French 75 with cognac or the way that Arnaud serves it at least. Um, and when I think of, you know, what to drink when I'm in New Orleans or when I want to be reminded, it's always one of those two cocktails, Arnaud's French 75 or La Louisiane. Uh, obviously, one's a little heavier than the other, so... Uh, depends on the time of day, I guess. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Very nice. All right, let's do it then. Let's 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 kick off now with question number six for yourself, given that you've done the first oh, five in yeah. a previous episode. Okay, so they keep counting. The, t- yeah, the counter keeps going. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to keep counting them there. <laughs> and you know what? Well, someday there will be an 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. We'll get I there. I love it. I love Maybe it. the Kira Royale episode. Who knows? Oh, I don't know if you'll get that. anyone else to do it other than me, Tim. <laughs> I don't know a lot of fans out there. There we go. We're putting that one on the calendar loosely. <laughs> We're penciling it in. Um but let's kick off here. Which spirits category are you currently most excited about? Well, there's sort of like a, a macro and a micro answer to this, I guess. And, you know, I am very happy that Amari has crossed over into the mainstream. And I think especially if you count things like Aperol, that's obviously helped it. You know, if you count Aperol as a member of the Amari family, which is a little dubious, but... Um, you know, all the spritzers out there um, are are finally getting down on some better drinking, I think, than than 10 years ago. So that's cool. I don't know if I'm excited about it or if it excites me personally, but it's, I think, a good thing, a good, you know, end result for the palate of, you know, America and just drinking culture all around. Sure. Um, beyond that, I would also say as a, you know, big old category – Rum and understanding like producer-driven island-focused rums is definitely way up on my list. Um, and then I guess on a more me personally excitement level, there are there's a, some really exciting things coming out of Mexico that are agave-based but not necessarily in the context that we know them. So 
I'm sure you've probably had it, Tim, but um, there's really amazing agave-based gins that are essentially, mm-hmm. you know, blur the line between mezcal and herbalized mezcal. Yep. And gin, uh, which I love. The love Ancestral the idea there. there from, why am I forgetting? Yes. I'm blanking on the producer's name. We just ran a gin roundup with this one in it. It was the first time I had it. Phenomenal. Yes, I was at a tasting actually um, with my friends at Skernick the other day, yes. and they are doing just such a remarkable job at, at championing that category and championing it well and thoughtfully and sustainably. Um, I tasted, and this is this is actually the 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 real exciting thing for me. Uh, I love Eau de Vie. I'm a, a big fan of like expressing fruit through liquor. Um, and Mexico, as anyone who's traveled there knows, and much of South, Central and South America is just the most bountiful <laughs> fruit destination right. you could imagine. And yet in America, we don't taste any of them. We hardly know any of them. Um, so there is a, a French gentleman who moved to Mexico City, if I got this, I think I got this right, to, for college and then started a business in Oaxaca distilling um, locally sourced uh, exotic fruit. Wow. So, up to and including, you know, obvious, more obvious ones like mango, but also things like um, guava and just, I mean, really, oh, banana. Wow. Oh, my <laughs> so God. So really remarkable stuff um, that, you know, when you taste it, it's just incredibly transportive. And for me, I think that's the crux of what I'm after when I look for something to excite me is, you know, a, a liquor or a spirit or a wine that really transports me. And it doesn't surprise me that those are coming into the country via those the fine folks there at Skernick because I got, I got to say, I got to give them a shout out, you know. They're uh, right around the corner. I mean, they're right in the neighborhood. They're too. right here. <laughs> and you know what? They did send us those gins and, they, they, you know, they do a fantastic job of um, just sharing with us here at Vinepair the new and exciting products that they have. And it's always appreciated in their always super high quality. So, yes. you know, if I see Skernick on a back label of anything, I'm willing to try it no matter what it is. I mean, yeah. Specifically, my dear friend Justin Lean-Briggs over there is uh, kind of leads the charge in hunting down these new spirits, which I cannot imagine a cooler job. Yeah. Uh, that gentleman has seen it all and tasted most of it all. And brought many a smile to face the faces of folks such as ourselves who get to yeah enjoy the fruits of that labor right there yes um all right then question number seven or two whichever way you're looking at it (laughs) what's the last drink or cocktail you had that truly wowed you you might have just answered that there i have (laughs) that would be a cop-out i guess yes that would be um i have a friend uh nathan mccarley o'neill who um took over beverage for uh, major food group and he's making great drinks. I'll just leave it there. He has a very nice martini. Yeah. Gentleman. Yes. Where should be the first spot that folks check out? If you're like going to see one of these different locations of theirs. Um, well the new Teresi is very, very good. Nice. Check it out. I'm happy for, uh, to, to see somebody like him in charge. You know, he has a long history bartending in, New York and in London and worked with the Nomad team for years and years and years. So, um, yeah, upward and onward, great great to see him uh, in that position now. Nice. What's one book you think every cocktail or alcohol enthusiast should own a copy of? Beyond Maison Premier Almanac. <laughs> damn it, That's damn a given. <laughs> <laughs> no more cop-outs. You know, I guess to me, I, I would, my quick answer is Savoy. 
um, and always kind of has been. And I think it's not because it's necessarily the most instructive. Um, the, the recipes definitely aren't the best tasting. Yep. If you make them to, to <laughs> exactly as written. Um, however, it, I can't think of a better compendium of just every cocktail that matters almost all in one place. Um, I also just love that era of history in drinking culture, the way that the drinks were named. It's just been invaluable, you know, for a project like Maison Premier, which is, you know, very tied up into the sort of wit and wisdom and lore of drinking history. Um, Savoy is, you know, absolutely my desert island yeah. one, I would say. I think it's also one of those ones where, to your point, yeah, the, the recipes maybe don't hold up now for myriad reasons, and, you know, we discuss them a lot, but when you start to learn more about cocktails and then you maybe you got that book just as you were beginning your journey in bartending, but then when you return to it with a lot more knowledge, maybe a, three, a few years down the line, you start to be able to, like, interpret, okay, this is what they were going for here rather than... I'm following this recipe to the T and this drink doesn't taste as good as I hoped it would. Absolutely. I think you could, you know, pick a pick a page in the book, pick a cocktail on the page, point to it, and then almost mentally reverse engineer out a good yeah. <laughs> version of it. But I love the Savoy for being that prompt. Yes. It's like a very good creative prompt for me personally um, because if, it, if the recipes were better, I would al- it would almost get confusing or I think I would feel bad about just adopting them as freely but this I use it as a template yeah and that's that's just the approach I've always used I do have to say you know the Oxford companion that you mentioned earlier just one-stop shopping yeah wonderful resource <laughs> right there yeah. 100%, yeah. 100%. yeah 100% penultimate question today if you could appear in one movie scene where alcohol plays a prominent role which would it be and who would you like to play I guess I would say you know, Roger Sterling drinking a martini in the office. Um, yeah. He just, <laughs> I think, embodies the, you know, of course, the style, of course, the the history and, and that moment in history. But um, he just doesn't have a care in the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is totally unplugged from the realities of what's going on at the office uh, and is able to disconnect and just luxuriate in drinking a martini. And yeah. it's... To me, it seems like no one enjoys a martini as much as <laughs> that oh, guy at that moment. So, honestly, yeah, I think there's an incredible, whether intentional or not, like a lot of imagery in that show, and and they draw certain things that maybe you don't always consider at first, like the difference between Don Draper's character and Roger Sterling's character. And you have like Roger Sterling, who is like a silver fox, and he generally wears like lighter suits. And you yes. think of that in terms of the martini. Then on the other hand, you got Don Draper's jet black hair. And yes. He's on the darker. old-fashioned front. Like he's the darker horse there Oh, that's on that really one. good, Tim. Yeah, I like that. That's really good. He's white, spirit, clear spirits and yeah. Don's dark spirits. Don's dark, aged, brooding. You know, um... Roger Sterling, actually, I'm just going to keep referring to him by his character name. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I've had the pleasure of serving him at Maison, and he's been in several times. I've only maybe personally served him once and was dying to make him that martini. And sadly, the gentleman of all the things that Maison Premier offers uh, ended up ordering, like, I, I want to say a, a Rachbier, like a smoke German beer. Really? Smoke German lager. 
Wow. Uh, of all the things. Yeah. I thought it was just a little funny for such a martini monger. You know? <laughs> That's where sadly reality, uh, real life, yeah, maybe departs from the the, the fiction, the wonderful <laughs> it, stories. It that, was like 2 p.m. So maybe, well, maybe that had something to do I with it. I mean, Roger Sterling would have done it. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> it would have been too deep by then. All right. Final question for you today, William. Which modern classic cocktail do you think is more deserving or sorry, deserving of more recognition than it gets? You know, there are some cocktails out there that are um, just so perfectly, you know, penicillin is just such an incredible, when I think of modern cocktail, modern classic, that's, I I don't even know how many others there are. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess like white Negroni and things like that. I mean, those all get a lot of attention and deservedly so. And I enjoy them myself. Um, uh, My girlfriend's avid white, Negroni drinker, mm-hmm. um, you know, I've been known to have a penicillin. Um, <laughs> I have a cocktail. I'm just going to throw it out there yeah, if that's okay. It, do. it pops into my mind because you were asking me earlier about ratios and wash lines and things like that. And um, It's an oldie but a goodie. It's kind of a fan favorite at Maison. It's not wildly popular or high up in the sales mix, but and it's definitely a little out there, um, but it's called Future Days. And it's an all-equal-parts cocktail, uh, ounce, 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 old Tom Gin, like barrel-aged, though. Can't be something like Heyman's. It would have to be Ransom or, you know, maybe uh, Rice at Bower's, you know, blue gin that's yep. barrel-aged. Um, Amaro Abano, Luxardo Amaro Abano. So sort of like a underutilized Amaro, too. And then Mezcal. Bizarre, wow. right? I, I know. I love I love the look. Wow. It's a bizarre one. And here's the other part. Dashes of absinthe and a couple of dashes of grapefruit bitters stirred. It's as brooding as as a drink gets um, while still being drinkable, quaffable, refreshing, I think. I mean, I don't know that I would say it's refreshing. You know, it depends. If you're mm-hmm. a person that thinks a Manhattan's refreshing, maybe you'd find this refreshing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the kind of person that thinks uh, daiquiri's refreshing. So yeah. That's just me. Um, but yeah, so it's an all equal parts drink and it just bizarrely works really well. Um, garnished with a grapefruit twist, you know, expressed, discarded, blah, blah, blah. Fantastic. Um, And yeah, it's just the dashes of absinthe and our earlier conversation about how dashes of absinthe can play into a drink. This is another perfect example of that. Um, and it was actually a piece of advice given to me by a bartender, a notable old New York bartender sitting at the bar at Maison Premier. I, I made him taste an early incarnation of the drink. And he said, try it with a dash or two of absinthe. So I have to give credit where credit's due there. And uh, yeah, it, it worked perfectly. Phenomenal. Remind us of the name there. Oh, um, Future Days. Future Days. Yes. After uh, Can, it's a German band, uh, just an amazing... Uh, Kind of like uh, psychedelic 60s German band. Wonderful. Well, you know, I'm long overdue a visit, so I know what I'm doing very soon now, heading over yeah, to Come Museum. this weekend. Yeah. Or, or you know, come to our um, uh, one of our book launch events. That would be. We'd love to have you. Don't need to ask me twice there, William. <laughs> but thank you. Listen, thank you so much. And just a reminder again there, you know, April 25th, the Maison Premier Almanac. It has a longer second part of the title, but I, I decided, <laughs> I took the executive decision to it's drop right. that for now. It's all right. Um, Amazon wouldn't let us use that part of the title. <laughs> <laughs> so check that out, folks. I mean, this has been a wonderful preview for it. William, 
Thanks again for coming back. Tim, it's always good. I look forward to questions, what, 12, 13? Where is it starting? 11 through 15. Next time on, on the Cure episode. On the Cure Royal. Sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> Chat soon. Cheers. Okay, I know what you're thinking, folks. That was a lot of info. But here's the good news. Every single episode of Vinepair's Cocktail College is published on vinepair.com as a transcript. So you can check it out there all over again. If you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe. And please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded in New York City and produced by myself and Darby Seaside, who also composed our awesome theme music. Just give that a listen, folks. I also want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the VinePair team, especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, editor-in-chief Joanna Sherino, and art director Daniel Grinberg, who designed our killer logo. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time. <laughs>